Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're going to get to Steve Javi in a moment. Adam, I got something real quick on Fantasy Hoops. Yeah. I joined a new league this year. Great group of guys. But I cannot do a weekly transaction league anymore. I mean, I just assumed, honestly, it was going to be a daily transaction league, but it's not. And it's weekly transactions. And with so many players just sitting out this load management nonsense, it's it's inconceivable to be running a fantasy basketball league where you can't make changes for that night's games at 6.30. I mean, how... Wait, I mean, what's the point of having Giannis at number one when he's a game-time decision? And you don't know why. It's just, well, he might be resting that night. Or Kawhi or even LeBron when he goes day-to-day and you're thinking, all right, well, maybe I should put him back in this week. And, you know, maybe two games of LeBron is... I, it's, it's barbaric to do anything but a daily transaction league, and it does not take too much of your time. Yeah. Yeah, and and by the way, no, it'd be hard enough just in a daily transaction league, which I know is difficult just enough on its own because guys, you don't even know at this point. They're waiting as long as possible for the news to come out, and then you got to think about whether you knew you you made the right move or not. And you now want to multiply that by a weekly transaction league? Good luck to you. Good luck. That's barbaric. Yeah, I agree. I don't like it. What do you got? No, you don't. I had an interesting thing happen to me this week. So I was hanging out with a former NBA star. I'm not going to say his name, but uh, super nice guy. So there's your one clue. Super nice guy, star, all, former all-star? Mm, y- yes, maybe. Maybe once. Champion? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking for too many hints. Anyway, so we're hanging out and uh, in a casual setting um just watching some some games and, and I'm not even going to give the setting but we're we're watching some games together and as we are he's casually just cool as a cucumber very calm all this and starts telling me hey you know right now on eBay they're they're bidding on a Michael Jordan basketball card that if you had this card you'd want to quit your your day job and I said okay okay how much is it is it worth he said the bidding starting at 175,000 or something what? like some number like that, which right away I was stunned by. So then I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty wild. But then fast forward about 10 minutes later, he's just casually just mentions that in conversation. We talked about it a little bit. I gave him some follow-up, you know, questions as, as uh, I learned from you on your, on your follow-up podcast. <laughs> and, and then about 10 minutes later, he says to me, Oh, I just missed out. And I go on what? And he goes, that what I was telling you about the bidding, he's like, I, I was in on the bidding actually. I go, what was your bid in for? And he said, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for this Michael what? Jordan. What? He got outbid by one hundred dollars. Wait, 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 how do you get outbid by a hundred bucks? Well, I'm about to, I'm about to say, I think on eBay when, when 
uh, bidding is for on items that high, they you can put like a cap number and say like, hey, I want to outbid by $100 every time someone bids up into whatever your ceiling is, right? So if you say up until $500,000, I'll bid $100 more than the highest bidder. So in order for someone to beat that, they have to just keep bidding against this, you know, mythical machine, you know, racing against this machine. But but basically, yeah, so he put in a bid of 350000 decided that was it for him, even though he initially was said to me that he wanted to go up to two twenty. Somehow went up to 350, and the rationale was that he said he knew that he could get Michael Jordan to sign the card. Oh, and then he said he could then because the card would be so expensive, plus a Michael Jordan signature, he could put it in the Hall of Fame or the Smithsonian for a year on loan, and it would be worth so much more money when it got out that then he could sell it for even more. So it was actually an investment for him, not a crazy purchase, although it obviously was a crazy purchase yeah the catch and shoot podcast is a presentation of pure hoops media catch and shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of nba nation covered adam stanko in the bay area and noah kozlov in the big apple catch and shoot featuring myself Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. We are one of three weekly shows in the Pure Hoops Media family. The Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman comes your way each Friday. And the newly rebranded Mike Wise Show drops each Monday. Mike's most recent guest was legendary coach, broadcaster, and a friend of mine. I have to mention that. PJ Carlissimo, one of the all-time great guys. Great interview. Please listen to all of our shows and subscribe, download, rate, review, and of course, enjoy. Guys, explain this to me. All right, Adam, explain this to me. The Milwaukee Bucks are getting slept on as Eastern Conference contenders. Yeah, Noah, as we as we record this podcast, the Bucks have won five straight games. They've gone 19 and two in the last 21 with wins over Toronto and our producer Bruce Bernstein's beloved Boston Celtics. They're 32 and eight against the East. They lead the league in wins on the road with 21. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But here's the most important thing to me is that the Bucks are on pace to win more than 60 games. And there hasn't been an Eastern Conference team to do that since the 2012-2013 Miami Heat. So we're talking about a team that is rolling right now. They've got an MVP candidate, maybe the front runner in Giannis. Yes, front runner. I, I just think that we're not talking because the Sixers are so good, because of all the Celtics drama, because LeBron's still in the league but in the West. For all of these reasons, and probably most importantly because of the Warriors, we're not talking about the fact that this Milwaukee Bucks team is outstanding and not only should be the favorite, but this team could possibly win an NBA championship. And even I'm reluctant to say it, so maybe I'm sleeping on Yeah, that. right. So I'm not going to say win an NBA championship, but I think right now they'd be the favorite to win, or they'd be the favorite to get to the Eastern Conference Finals against the Raptors. And also it's really impressive, being 21, as we record on, on Tuesday night, 21-9 and nine on the road is crazy. And But I, but I think that the whole being slept, upon in, in, slept on in the Eastern Conference is a bit much because nobody has accomplished anything. 
except really as a star is Kawhi since he was finals MVP. There, there hasn't been anybody, and he did that with with Tim Duncan and, and Tony Parker and Manu and Pop. So no one has gone to the NBA Finals from this group in the Eastern Conference. And I'm taking I'm taking Kyrie out of this just because I think he's mental at this point. But and he hasn't done it with he hasn't done it without LeBron. So I think that's why no one really has a true grasp on this Eastern Conference. But again, we talked about it a few weeks ago. The Indiana Pacers are an insane story. And the Pacers, if they're able to stay in that position and force a four or five between you know what could be the Celtics and the Sixers, then that would really blow up any sort of team's off seasons. I think I think the Pacers have that type of power. But I agree. I'm 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 with you on the Bucks that maybe it's because their second all star is is Chris Middleton and their second all star isn't Kyrie. And you know, it's not LeBron and Kyrie. Maybe that's the reason. But either way, uh I think I think right now Bucks and Raptors are my favorites in the East. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and maybe the other names, too, aren't as sexy. The Brooke Lopez's of the world, the Malcolm Brogdon's. But at the end of the day, they're getting it done. And the Greek freak has been on another planet. No, explain this to me. LeBron is most at fault for the Lakers' issues. Yeah, I mean, on the court, absolutely he's the most at fault. Because if he's going to get all the credit, he's got to take the blame also. And he just, God forbid, one time, one time LeBron said... Hey, look, I watched the film. I got chewed out and I deserved it. And this is on me. I got to lead not just by my words, but I got to lead by example. I mean, can you, you imagine that coming out of his mouth? Or maybe even an Instagram post after a loss. Maybe you say that instead of, sheesh, boy, J. Cole said it. And look at me. I'm in the top 10 in points and assists <laughs> after, they, after, they lose, after they lose to Memphis. Have some sort of have some sort of self awareness. You, you fashion yourself being the smartest guy in the room. How about how about some self awareness? Because I mean, the guys really to blame, I think, are Rob Palenka and Magic Johnson. But on the because they of the group that they assembled there, that they thought that this is the team that could that they could put around LeBron and and they could succeed despite LeBron saying we got to be patient, got to be patient. But we all know LeBron has no patience, and nor should he. He's in year sixteen. He shouldn't have any patience. But LeBron on the court is absolutely the most to blame. And if he actually said publicly that I am to blame, then that could lead to something good for the Lakers. Isn't it incredible, Noah, that we're at this point of the season, we're past the all-star break. It's looking so grim. It looks like the Lakers are not going to make the playoffs. Now, of course, it's not unreasonable to think that they could. Of course they could. But the idea that they may not make the playoffs, they're currently out of the, the top eight in the West. And yet we're mentioning LeBron as being the main reason why and not LeVar Ball. I, I think it's in, incredible. And I will say this about, about LeBron in general. If you look across the board at his numbers statistically, everyone wants to look at advanced metrics. I mean, lowest percentage of corner threes taken in his career, just 2.5%. Mm. Um, lowest defensive win shares, 2.1% of his career. Um, highest three-point field goals attempted per game. 5.8 in his career. Yeah, I can see and by that. the way, he's shooting under 35% from three, and he's only shooting 67% from the line. So statistically, in the in the categories that matter nowadays, you can talk about the totals, and he's going to, about where he is top 10 in points and assists and all of the incredible things he's amassed throughout his career. But you bring up a great point, Noah. This season in particular is a down year for LeBron, 
and he is the face of the franchise, making him the most to blame. And when he tries to deflect onto other players and say they're not necessarily worthy of playing for the Lakers if they can't take the heat, how about he puts some of that on himself? That was fascinating. Steve Javi joins us 25 years as an NBA official and now a officiating analyst for ABC ESPN. He played at Temple pre-John Chaney. He was an umpire in the Florida State League in A-ball. He was a former Baltimore Orioles pitching prospect. Steve, how good of a baseball player were you? Uh, when you use the word prospect, that's how I was going to take that out because I don't think I was ever a prospect. I was signed by the Baltimore Orioles and pitched for about like a year in the minor leagues and released the very next year. So prospect was probably not uh, – wasn't up there as a prospect. Well, well what were your was, prospects as a baseball player? Uh, as a pitcher. I was a pitcher. And um, let, me see, uh, let me see. I thought I was pretty good. And then when I got to the first time in the minor leagues and I saw kids three years younger than me, that could throw it 10 miles an hour harder, I knew that my chances were too good. <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, what then, uh, how, how do you go from being a, a baseball pitcher to an NBA official? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one, too. Um, you know, growing up uh, in a household, my dad was an NFL official, uh, Stan Javi, for 30 years. And he officiated in four Super Bowls. And then I had my godfather, who was a really good friend of my father's. He was an American League umpire who umpired in three World Series, which is his name was Johnny Stevens. So growing up, I was growing up in a household with officials as, you know, these guys who are looking up to. But I didn't want to be an official. I wanted to be a player. And obviously, after I was done playing baseball really pretty quickly after college, um, I didn't really jump into officiating that quickly, even though I was doing some high school basketball when I was in college. I, uh, I got into the business field for a little while for about sales for about a year or so, but then realized, you know what, I've got to follow my dream, which has got to be in some kind of sport somewhere. Couldn't play anymore, never coached, so I tried officiating. And what I did is um, I would officiate basketball in the wintertime, high school basketball in the Philadelphia area. And in the summertime, actually, I went away to umpire school and was picked uh, in the umpire school to, to, referee, to umpire in the minor leagues and uh, spent two and a half years doing that. Um, after the two and a half years were, well, I guess going into my third year is when there's a player strike and I was supposed to be moved into double A and I got stalled because of the player strike. And so, and I just decided that, you know what, I think I enjoyed basketball more and I got out of baseball and put all my eggs in one basket in basketball when I was uh, 25 years old and uh, worked my way up. I got into the CBA, worked my way up in five years at the age of 30 and got into the NBA. And then, uh, then 25 years later, uh, I got out because of an injury, and here I am talking to you guys seven years later. You know, it's like, how fa- guys, I know you're younger than me. Time goes by pretty quickly, man. So they like, enjoy it, brothers. Right, enjoy now, it. now you've hit rock bottom. You're spending 30 minutes with us. <laughs> so, wait, so when you were at Temple, yeah. when you were at Temple, did you play baseball or basketball? No, I was a baseball player at Temple, yeah. I was oh, baseball. Okay. Matter of fact, Temple being, you know, back then, it's really in the 70s, uh, Temple was one of the premier teams, not just in the East, but in the country. My senior year, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to my former coach who's still with us, Skip Wilson, um, legendary coach at Temple. He's coached there for 40 years or so or more. We were ranked in the top 10 of the country. And for a school in the northeast part of the country, that was pretty good. I know St. John's was always pretty good. University of Maine was, believe it or not, pretty good too. And then Temple. So we were always competing uh, in the districts. And I'll I tell you a quick story. 
the effect that I had on Temple University baseball. The, uh, the year before I got to Temple, they went to the College World Series. The year after I left Temple, they went to the College World Series. <laughs> that's, that's how I affected Temple. Once I got out, they went to the World Series again. Yeah, that's, a, that's one of those simple science experiments with the variable, and uh, you happen to be the variable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they weren't right. going to the, to the College World Series anymore. Your, your father, Stan, 30 years as an NFL official. What are some of the things that he had to deal with that you saw at home, things that may have worn on him as an official? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I, I do relate to some of the things. Uh, he, he with, with regard to officiating in the NFL, of course, we know it's a right, right then. Now, sometimes it's a full-time gig. It was part-time. So he would work five days a week, leave on Saturday, come home Sunday night and work five days a week. So he's working seven days a week. Uh, the one thing that I did see a couple things with my dad is affected how dedicated he was to the sport, number one, um, of studying his rules just about every night. I mean, after dinner, he had his rule books underneath his chair in the living room watching TV, and he pulled out those rules for half hour, hour every night. Um, I think that what, what got to him after a while was probably the travel because it's just, you know, working seven days uh, with his normal job and with the NFL. With the NFL. Uh, the travel got to him, but also I think you know it's um, he 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 enjoyed he he didn't enjoy the as the years went on. Now he he got out in 1980, so we're talking about how many years ago? Almost 40 years ago, uh, he got out in 1980, um, and he saw the change of the players then because the money started getting better and better, and he saw the change of the players. But he he so enjoyed the competition, he so enjoyed officiating. He was uh, he really was a, a great mentor uh, in officiating for me and, and in life too. So what did he do for the other five days? He worked for a paint company. He was actually a, a vice president for sales for a paint company here in Philadelphia. So he had an office job uh, and he worked, you know, his, uh, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, come home and, uh, and then just, you know, and study his rules and go out on the road on Saturday morning, come home Sunday night. Incredible. Uh, it's, it's, it's wild to think about that, that lifestyle officiated four Super Bowls. Uh, what Super Bowl memories do you have of, of him? Uh, officiating? Uh, none really. And here's the reason why, guys. This is going to be kind of crazy. I've been an avid Eagles fan since I was like five or six years old. And I think you guys being the guys can relate to the Eagles. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would go to games. My, my dad's brother, my Uncle Joe, we used to pick me up every Sunday and take me to the Eagles game at Franklin Field where they were playing years ago. And I knew Franklin Field like the back of my hand. Wherever anybody told me where they were going to the game and where they were sitting, I could tell them what yard line they were on and everything. I was such an Eagles fan. I never wanted to go to a Super Bowl, even when my dad officiated. Because I said, Dad, what am I going to do? I'm not going to root for anybody. I sit in the football game and not root for the Eagles. My mom went. My brother went. My sister. Everybody went wow. to a game. I, I never went. And my dad understood. But it's, it's so funny. And funny, conversely, he never went to an NBA game either when I was refereeing. So, <laughs> so did, uh, have, have you ever been to a Super Bowl? Did you go when the Eagles were there two years ago? I have never been to a Super Bowl. I did not know. It's funny. And the older you get, you know what's so funny? My dad was this way too. Uh, once you get involved in the sports at the level that he was and I was, I was, and then you get involved with how big an event, say, the Super Bowl is or the finals of the NBA are and the crowds and so on and so forth. It's almost like I'd rather watch it on TV. I don't need to be at the arena because I was there. Being in the NBA Finals is such a, such a high that I can't imagine going to a Super Bowl, even rooting for the Eagles. I think I'd rather be home having a couple beers and enjoying it home with my family that way. I want to get to some of the stories from the CBA, but 
How, how do you describe the adrenaline rush coming out for a finals game? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's, 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 you really can't explain it. It's something that I think the buildup is probably more nerve wracking than anything else. One thing people always do is to ask me, do you sleep well before the game the night before? I slept very well. Got a nap before the game. And the reason why is because I knew I was prepared for the, uh, for the job. I knew I was ready to do the finals. And, and, and it's almost like if you weren't prepared or if it's something you're uncomfortable with, that's when you toss and you turn. But I slept like a baby because I know I prepared for it. I was ready for the job. And then the, the adrenaline rush, the buildup is the hardest part because everybody else around you, I, I noticed, was nervous. Everybody. I mean, like we had like people from the front office of the NBA would come into the locker room before the game and they're nervous. And I can see why, because they're not controlling the game themselves. Like they're, they're looking at us three guys going like, Hey, you guys better never mess up. And but no, they don't say that, but they'd be in a locker room and you could just feel the nervous energy where I would actually shoo them out of the locker room. Just, can you please do me a favor? I'm trying to get my crew ready for this game. And then he leaves. And now, and here's the, I'm talking to the vice president of operations. And I just did one in my locker room, but the build up and walking on the floor with all the, oh my gosh, all the media and the cameras at mid court. And you're standing there and you're going like, let's get this game going. And then once the game got going, that's when it was like, you know, you settle in and it's really good, but the build up and all is a little nerve wracking, but um, it, it is a general rush. It really is. One thing that's one thing my dad taught me years ago, because he said, whether it be the Super Bowl. The NBA Finals, the World Series, the key to it is not to get wrapped up in the moment. The key is total concentration. And he would tell me that if he could teach young referees or young officials, I should say, in the NFL to officiate and concentrate for 60 minutes, they can do any game. But your mind sometimes can wonder and think about, like, this car, that car, that crowd, or so on. And that's one thing he taught me about total concentration during the game. Well, it's like being a player that you've got to have that play and then move on and put it put it behind you with without a doubt because in, especially in basketball and how quick it is and you know in basketball we officials i mean i admit it we admit we miss calls every night every quarter um and so you just have to get that out of your mind go to the next play and let's see what happens you know just keep going all right so let's go back to the cba first guy you tossed oh. was who boy that's a great question but i do have a good story with with phil jackson though um Please. We, we were in uh phil jackson i'm the first guy i taught you know what? It was a player of some sort. Uh, on Christmas Day, I think it was. My name too. <laughs> but um, but no, I, Phil Jackson was coaching up in all. I did a lot of Albany games because I didn't travel around the country a lot. I had a sales job at the time, so I was like kind of relegated to the East Coast. Lancaster had a team. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Baltimore had a team. Albany had a team, so I could you work those games. But Phil, um, Phil was uh, coaching Albany one night and. I hit him with a technical foul in the first first half. And in Albany, it, they had this old armory where they had a basketball court. And it was that's it was an armory. I mean, it was this old building. They put up temporary stands, a court, and you had to walk down a couple sets of steps to get like, to the first set of locker rooms, which is the players. Then the second set of steps is where the bathrooms were, where the referees changed. Okay, so a little different. So we would always follow the teams down, all right, to the locker room. And we're walking down the steps. Um, I, I, I take a look up, and there's Phil Jackson looking out the door. And I can't tell you what he said, but he, you know, just basically uh, said a few choice words to me, and uh, with some adjectives involved. And uh, and I went, and he closed the door. And I said, "Son of a gun!" And I was working with Joe Borgia, my huh. friend Joe Borgia, who works, you know, the replay center. Now, yeah, sure. The replay center. 
And so I get downstairs and said, Joe, I can't believe what he called me. I said, do you believe that? I said, I'm throwing him out. Joe says, Steve, he, take it easy, take it easy. He said, why don't you just like give him a short leash for the free, you know, second half instead of throwing him out. And I said, nah, Joe, I'm throwing him out. So we went back and forth. So I walk up the steps. I still wasn't sure. But then I think I did make my mind up. I walked up the steps, standing on the court, waiting for the second half to start. And, of course, the teams are warming up. Phil's the last one to come up. And as he's coming up, I start walking towards him. So I figured I'd give him a chance. I said, did you see that thought you said to me? And he said, yeah. I go, you're not coaching the second half. And all I did was turn around and walk right back down the steps again. And it was funny. <laughs> and I just – and boys just says, I don't believe you did that. I said, Joe – in my mind, I can't let somebody who called me that name, I can't let him coach the game. I just can't do it. You know? So then, did you remember the first time that you officiated a Phil Jackson game in the NBA? I don't remember that, but I know that we always had a good relationship. The funny thing is, um, I really enjoyed working for Phil. I thought he was very fair. I thought, um, I, I think our experience together in the CBA, where he knew me and I knew him, and now he would tell me, he'd yell at me, of course, in that gravelly voice, yeah, you missed another one, or that's, a, that's the worst call. Said, so I don't think that's the worst call. Remember back in Albany, that one call I made, he really didn't like, and he goes, ah, shut <laughs> up, or something. So yeah, we, he, he was a little, you know, we had a contentious relationship, but it was a good one. I enjoyed him. I really did. So in regards to your relationship, I mean, you touch on it somewhat, the, the relationship with coaches and, and the discussions you're having. I mean, I remember... Steve, watching some of the ESPN games where you'd be wired up and, and they'd sort of have your back and forth with coaches and players. I'm really curious, during NBA games, what the chatter is like between the coaches and the officials. Can you explain what, what that's like and what, what it sounds like, what you guys are talking about? Yeah, I'm going to preface it. I'll put it in a couple different categories, guys, because, um, number one, it depends – Every Every relationship play, uh, referee and coach is different than another one because we have on the staff at, at any time 60 to 65 referees. Um, and then, of course, in a coach, you have, you know, 30-some 30 30 some coaches in the NBA. And I may, I may get along with one coach and somebody may not, you know, the same guy. And, and it just happens that way. Of course, just like in life, I may like somebody and you may think not that highly of that person. So it does happen. So you have to say that different um, uh, the the uh, relationships are a little different. And also, when you first come into the league, uh, when I first came in or any rookie comes into the league, and by rookie, the first five years or so, I'm saying not just first year or two, there there is a little different way of them treating you because they're testing you. They're trying to find out where your line is, where you're going to go. So when I came up, I came up in an era of some difficult coaches. Uh, I'm talking about um, Bill Fitch. I'm talking about Dick Mata. You know, I'm talking about um, Don Nelson. I mean, these guys would just take you right to that line to see where, where your line is and so on like that. So they would test me and I'd have to respond and, and so on. So once you've established yourself and then become maybe a crew chief and they know what to expect from you and then you have maybe some experience together, that's when – and that's, that's what I'll talk about, like the chatter on the court. Now, for a younger guy, the best thing is not to say a word as a referee. Because I know for me, all I did was get myself in trouble when I opened my mouth because I had no idea what to say, how to say it, and, you know, who to say it to. As I got older, I still got in trouble sometimes, too. But, um, but I just knew that certain coaches I could talk to, certain coaches I would have a relationship with, and other coaches I really didn't. And I would just try to be as professional as I could. And sometimes, I, I mean, if the coaches and I don't get along, because obviously there's personalities that don't get along, I would just 
not even say anything because I figured it's not going to, it's not going to do any good here. And they could perceive that as arrogant sometimes or this, or, and it's like, no, it's just the fact that, you know what? I just, you and I haven't had this good relationship. I'm just going to keep my distance. You keep your distance. This is a professional relationship here. This is nothing personal here. This is just business. And I think that's what happens nowadays. Sometimes when players or coaches talk about, oh, we have to form a relationship. No, you don't. You really don't. And I think the league, I, I disagree with the league. I don't think referees and coaches and players have to have a relationship. It's, it's business out there. The referees are out there to do a job, which most of the time players don't like and coaches don't like and owners don't like. And there's never going to be anything but a contentious relationship between, between players and coaches. But that doesn't mean he can't be professional, though, at the same time. So then what did you make of James Harden's comments the other day about Scott Foster? Well, I, I think the, 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 the most ludicrous thing he said, and if you think about this, guys, he said, he said I don't think he should referee any of our games anymore. Not because he got any calls, right? Because Scott didn't even make this calls he's talking about, all right? He, he said because of his demeanor. And he just sat there, and I, I, I scratched my head and says, okay, wait, you don't care if the guy got all the plays right. Now it's because he was, you know what, I can't talk to him. He, just, he was arrogant. He was rude to me. He says, do me a favor, put your big boy pants on, all right? Grow up a little bit. You know what? This is professional. If you don't like him, he doesn't like you, so what? Go out and shoot the ball. He's not going to affect that. And plus you said, he, it's not about the call. So it, it seems like in every era, I know in my era, I had players, coaches, teams, thought I was, you know, being, you Steve, it's personal. I said, this has nothing to do with personal. Things happen. There are times that a referee goes to a town or a team, and that team maybe loses every time that year with Steve or with a Joe Crawford or a Dan Crawford or whoever it may be. And it happens. I mean, there are teams, and when I was refereeing, you had your top-rated referees, say Joe, myself, Danny Crawford, Bennett Sandwich. Certain teams don't want to see them. They say, oh, this guy, he sticks it to me every time. I don't like him. So if they start listening to players or coaches, then they, this, they take, for example, Scott Foster in this instance. If the league agreed and said to Harden, okay, you know what? He's not going to referee the Houston games. Well, maybe Scott Foster, who is probably the best referee in the league, if not the one of the best, what, what if Houston is playing game seven against Team X, and Team X loves Scott Foster? I mean, thinks he's the best. Why should he deprive the other team of having one of the best officials? Just because James Harden, James Harden doesn't like his demeanor on the court. Right. It's, really, it's really kind of childish, I think. Who, who, is the, who is the player that, or maybe it was a group of players or even a coach that, just always thought it was personal with you. Yeah, there. Um, I could probably give you a list of about twenty or twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> go um, ahead, we're listening. But, um, <laughs> 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 yeah, go ahead, we're listening. Um, I think Rasheed Wallace always thought it was personal. You know, I think he always thought it was personal. Alan Iverson and I didn't get along get along too well. Um, going back. Um, the, uh, the Clyde Drexler, for some reason, everybody thought he's a nice guy. He he just thought everything was personal. Uh, it's, it's just it's really funny. I think I even think Tim Duncan thought it was personal at times. And I just think, I'd look at it and go, Tim, I, I'm trying to get plays right here. If you think they're ruling, that's fine. But that's the whole thing. I it's a, that's why the it's it's always going to be contentious. They my dad taught me years ago. He said, son. He said, no matter how much you try to explain to other people, whether it be coaches or players. Uh, announcers, whatever it may be, no matter how much you explain to them what a referee thinks or does, they can't understand because they don't wear your shoes and they don't go go through it. And just like I can't understand what you guys do for a living, 
Um, it's, it's like when I tell, like when I tell Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, we're, we'll travel once in a while together. And I say, well, this is how they'll ask me a question about refereeing. Cause obviously I refereed both of them as Mark as a player and uh, Jeff as a coach. And they say, well, Steve, what, what are you thinking of when this happens? Player X, play Y, player Y. I go, well, here's what, here's what, and they and I give them the answer and they go, well, no, you don't. I said, what do you mean? I don't No, you, you don't think that way. You think this way. I go, no, I don't. You just asked me a question. I answered it. So then when I asked them about coaching or, or playing, I don't question them because I have right. no idea how a coach thinks. But it seems like everybody knows how a referee thinks because when they say, when the first question someone asks you like on the street, who's your favorite team? Yeah. Right? <laughs> who's your favorite player? It's like, dude, dude, do you understand? Everybody treats me like a piece of crap, so I don't like anybody. All right. I don't like any team, any coach or anything like that. So I just treat everybody the same. All I'm trying to do is my job, make my boss happy and the NBA happy. That's all. All right. So I want to follow up on what you just said about fans asking you, who's your favorite team? Have you ever been in a situation where you might be at a restaurant or a bar after a game in that city and you overhear people crushing you? (laughs) Um. If if I do, I'll move away quickly. No, but I I, I can't I can't recall um, any. I, I oh, okay wait no I do now one incident okay uh, actually I'll give you two now 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 the memory bank's gone. Uh, I was with Ed Rush Senior, my my old boss, who was refereeing at the time in Salt Lake City, and we're we're taking the elevator up to our room, our hotel, and a couple fans are there, and they just they. Like, and I was a younger referee at the time, and Ed took, Ed took care of him verbally. The guys were going after us. And then one time, I was in well, the wait, 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 did they, wait. Did they know who you guys were? Oh, yeah. No, no, they did. They knew who we were. And they just like, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and Ed just like, you know, yo, pal, I can listen. Something like, some of the effect of, I'll listen to you when I'm refereeing, you know, and I'm on the court. I don't have to listen to you now <laughs> in the hotel lobby. You know, huh? That kind of stuff. <laughs> I even had, I even had a, that's right now as you're, as we're talking, because of course at my age, the light doesn't go on all the time, but once it goes on, um, I, I was sitting in uh, first class one time, like row one or row two, and a guy turns the corner and starts giving me crap. What? And, and, and the flight attendant went, sir, sir, what are you doing? Can you please keep moving? And then she, she looks at me, I go, he's a fan and I'm a referee. She goes, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, one time in a red carpet club in Chicago. I'm getting my flight change or something like that. The guy comes up. He goes, boy, you really suck last night. I went, yeah, pal. I said, I mean, yeah. So once in a while it happens. But uh, most times people don't have the guts to do it. But sometimes they do. You, you, Steve, you, you talk about, about the way the fans think about your calls. But what about you yourself? I mean, or how often do you think about the call that you made or the no call or even the game that you had that you wish you maybe could have get a do-over for? Yeah, I um, you know, you, you learn, to, obviously you learn through your mistakes. There's no doubt about it. And I can remember when I was a younger referee, I can give you, um, this one week that I had, um, uh, and this one week, I can't tell you the specific teams. I can tell you where I was. Uh, first, first game was in San Antonio and I blew the whistle on a foul at the end of the game. And it wasn't a foul. I found out later on watching the tape and the, you know, the wrong team, you know, wins the game because I blow the foul. Like two nights later, I'm, I'm, and I, and I'm talking. I'm not a crew chief yet. I'm a young referee, and I, I was just felt like, oh, believe me, those nights you just don't sleep. You just don't sleep at all. It's like son of a gun. And I say, come on, man. I'm saying you're better than this. You talk to yourself. I get to the next game, and doesn't the same thing happen again? I mean, oh, and I oh. and I have the same crew chief, 
And you get in the locker room and he looked at me and goes, he looked at me like I had two heads. He goes, what are you doing? I go, I have no idea. I said, I can't believe I did this. So, see, then again, I questioned, like, I, I said, because I'm a Polish guy, that I'm a little slower, so I take a little longer to learn. <laughs> but I just, it's like, and I, now, here's the weird thing, guys. Then, like, two nights later, I still remember this game, too. We're in Dallas. I'm at the same crew chief. I'm in Dallas. That's when Isaiah Thomas is playing with Detroit. Detroit's playing Dallas with Harper and those guys there. And, uh, uh, and, and we get down to the wire again. And it's the last possession again. It's just, it happens sometimes in streaks. We call them streaks, whether single fouls or close games or blowouts. Obviously, this was a streak here that I wanted to stop fast. But I remember, you know, my crew chief looking at me going, <clears throat> yeah, it's happened. You know, basically telling me it's happened twice. You didn't have to say that. And now I got to just, I mean, I'm concentrating. But I tell you, in the back of my mind, I'm just hoping that the final shot is not near me or the ball's not near me at all. Now, we come up we come up to court, and Isaiah Thomas has got it. I'm trailing the play, and right there. And, and I'll have to tell you, once he passed the ball to the wing to the right side of the court, and I went to the left side of the court, I just let out a deep sigh because I'm, well, I'm, I'm not in that play at all. You know? But I did. I mean, I, I learned from it. You learn. You watch your mistakes. You, you wonder why, and you just got to keep moving on. But you just got to keep learning from mistakes. The, I, I was at basketball camp as a kid. And I remember Mike Callahan came and was talking to us because I'm from the Westchester areas. We're all, we're all, uh, uh, Southeastern PA guys here. And, and Mike Callahan was at camp. And I remember him saying that the one thing that fans didn't understand was that NBA action happened so quickly that there wouldn't even be time to have a, a specific bias. And I know you were touching on it earlier. And then again, you, you reminded me of it because of the way that you're thinking about the calls and how much it's bothering you, even to this day. Um, how much is that the case where the game is moving so fast that you don't even necessarily understand which players, which in the moment you're just reacting to what you're seeing? So true what he says. I, I, I would say that too. I'll, I'll fast forward quickly. I'll, I'll come back to that in one second. But now that I'm retired and off the floor, I still remember when I, my first year I, I started working for ESPN, uh, they assigned me, uh, you know, to go to the games at the finals uh, on, on, on location instead of the replay center. Mm-hmm. And I went and I watched the, the game from the sideline. I went, and this is only a year after I was out of the league for 25 years and actually five years in the CBA, 30 years refereeing pro ball. After one year being out, I watched how fast it was just as sitting there as a employee of ESPN. I went, I refereed this. Oh, wow. I mean, I could, that's how fast it is, guys. I'm telling you. And even now when I'm in the replay center, I got to look at plays two, three, four times. I go, how, how, does he, how did he know that was right? How, that's how fast the game is. Oh. And so when people say, you favored Jordan, you favored this guy, you favored Burke, I said, guys, do you understand? And, and like, like Mike said, like we call him Duke, Duke Kelly. When Duke says about how quickly, I mean, plays happen. When even on, People don't even realize how quick when a guy takes a jump shot and a guy can tend contends the jump contest the jump shot you sit there and you go people think oh that's not a foul he comes so close sometimes and you're there in real time and he goes right by him and you go boy did he hit him did he touch his elbow or not touch his elbow i mean it happens in two tenths of a second and you have to be it's your mind is just programmed because day in and day out you're watching film you're watching games and so on and so forth but to favor somebody would be so difficult because i i used to tell people this they said Jordan because Jordan is the big guy, and you favored him. And I go, so, okay, get this. So the guy gets fouled, and I said, okay, he gets hit across the arm. And now I got it in my mind. Wait, 
but the Chicago's on defense, and I go up the guy's arm to look who's defending. Oh, that's number 23. That's Michael Jordan. Not, not going to call a foul because it's Michael Jordan because he's a superstar. Well, the, guess what? They just scored a layup down the other end of it. That's how fast the game is. So you can't – but people – that's what I'm saying about my father used to say, people don't understand. Until you get on the floor and see how fast this game is. And you get a guy like this guy Westbrook now who mm-hmm. from like – Oh my gosh! North to south just goes like this, and he's just a, he's a bull going to the basket. Oh, and Derek Rose in his heyday, how quick he would get slip defenders, and then you had to pick up that secondary defender coming, you know, to guard him in the paint. It was like, whoa, boy! I tell you, but it, it is uh, it's but that's see, that's the stuff that I miss. I miss the challenge of the mental challenge of it more than anything else. They don't miss the travel and so on and the BS from it. But I miss the mental challenge of the game of, of controlling a game, of knowing what's going on in the game, just be, besides calling, say, blocks or charges or out of bounds. And I've heard you say in the past that Shaq and Allen Iverson were the most difficult to officiate. How do you imagine yourself officiating James Harden and how do you grade today's officials in their doing so? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny. I, and and it, I'm not being on the court. Being on the court now, I was talking to someone the other day, and I, you know what I've got to do? I probably have to talk to Duke Callahan because he's gone through a lot of the stuff that I have, or Kenny Maurer because Kenny and I came in the league together. When I first came in, um, we had more of a half court game. All right, you had the, the Ewings, okay? You had the David Robinsons, you know? You had Shaq. You had, I mean, uh, you had some big guys, and they played half court offense, and you, you know, it's. Now, my old boss thought half-court offense was easy to referee. I think the opposite. I used to love it when you used to get the years ago, you would get Phoenix and Sacramento and be 130, 125, like scores are now. I think today it's a little bit easier because you're, you're, it's a perimeter game now. And you, all you got to do is you know, make sure you get the three-point line, the, the shooter, and so on and so forth. So to me, I think it's a little easier. Harden, um, Harden, not like some other guys in the past, too. Like you said, Iverson always, always forced you to blow it, put air in the whistle. He would try to force you. And that's, and that's what Harden does, but he does it a little differently too, because he's stronger. Harden's stronger. Um, I mean, Harden just, he sees, he, he's really, to me, he seems like he's such a smart player where he, the defensive guy, when he gets, when, when Harden gets him in a compromising position, like Harden knows that he's not in a legal guarding position, so he's going to go to contact with him. Or Harden knows the guy just reached in, so here he comes here. That doesn't mean now, that doesn't mean he doesn't, is acute too. That doesn't mean that he doesn't pull or hook or this or that. And by watching tape, well, we would see guys who were clever. Um, Reggie Miller was really, really clever around picks. I mean, so clever because he was like the energizer bunny. He would just keep running, running, running around picks. And then all of a sudden he'd get around a pick and he'd catch the, oh, you caught the tail end of it. And you see Reggie throw his arms up and so on. And it's, mm-hmm. it had to be a foul on somebody. And, and nine times out of 10, you called on a defender. And you watch the tape and you go, oh, no, it was Reggie who locked him first. Mm-hmm. So these guys who try to fool you, they're the guys that, you know, as a referee, you have to study them on tape. You have to study them, tell them so what they did. So when they get into your area, and so like before a game, if I have a game with James Harden, I'm telling my crew, if he's in your area, You've got a referee to defender, and just make sure you concentrate on him and nobody else. If Reggie Miller is in my area, make sure if he's ready to go around a pick, you have your eyes on that matchup. I mean, it's constant. You have to really, you have to be really aware of who's in the game, who's guarding them, who's the person trying to fool you all the time. And that's it's a, it's a you know it's a chess match. He's trying to fool you half the time, and the other half the time, you know what? He's pretty smart because he comp- he knows when the defender's compromised. But then, how do you handle the hardened the contact with the defender? 
and at the same time, him is ballet dancing. Uh, explain to me your ballet dancing. Like you know, whether he's traveling or not. Oh yeah, well that's that's true too. I mean, they're two different things, obviously. Um, obviously, it's the travel prior to the you know the uh, defender, but that's that's true. It's a good point because you're not going to catch everything, I mean, especially when we talk about traveling. I know the league and the officiating staff has gotten better with traveling because there's been an emphasis on it, and there has been year after year. The hard thing is once you concentrate on one aspect, it's going to weaken another aspect. There's no doubt about it. But there's still some things you can do to get better on it. And I think the NBA has done that, especially with perimeter travels, which is they've been doing a better job on because before we really didn't concentrate too much on the uh, perimeter travel, but then got, defenders are getting beat. And mm-hmm. so you're watching a tape, and a guy lifts that pivot foot just to get around him. So there's more concentration, more concerted effort to watch the pivot foot and on the perimeter. Before, we weren't watching that. We were more watching the defender because we felt that the turnover in regards to a foul was more important than the travel. Now, they're both, they're both important, but at the same time, you're not going to get everything. But I really believe the league is, is – I mean, are they going to miss travel and calls still? Certainly. You're going to miss foul calls? Sure. Certainly. But I think – uh, what they're doing now is putting a little more emphasis on that travel um, with with Harden or with Curry, you know Curry the step backs. But once you're doing the step backs, now they're allowing that one two, and they say you can shoot it. So that's that's not too bad. Steve, I've always found that NBA officials are one of the most honest groups of people. They admit all the time, "Hey, I missed this, I missed that." I'm curious, you know, you talk about these travel calls. Um, there's been a lot of, I guess, a groundswell over the past few years that officials should be doing press conferences after games. And, you know, and then we saw recently with the Bradley Beal, that whole five step no call that then we saw the NBA officials account on Twitter comes out and defends and said, well, he was sort of juggling the ball, which is sort of this weird <laughs> rule that people don't realize that that you can take as many steps as you want if you don't have full control of the basketball. So, I'm curious, from your perspective, what you think of officials actually having more of a voice to defend their calls and and have a public forum post game. I'm all for it. To be honest, right off the tip, I'm all for it, and here's the reason why: because something like you just said, and also because when a James Harden personally attacks an official, an official should be able to now give his account of what what happened during the game, especially with regard to say technical fouls. Um, a lot of times these guys who get technical fouls, if you remember last year, I believe it was last year when, you know, the, the uproar was the relationship between the officials and the players. Well, if you looked at who the players were, they were your usual suspects who get technicals every year. Your Draymond Greens, your, your uh, Chris Pauls. I mean, these guys are, are they're, they're a pain in the butt to every referee. And they're the ones like starting the swell of like, we need better relations. No, you need to treat referees a little more uh, professionally. And in those cases, I truly believe it because you don't know how many times that when someone comes out and says, the player, I, you know, I didn't say anything. I, I can't believe he got me for nothing. Or even a coach says that. And believe me, no referee is going to call and throw a player out for nothing. One thing a guy doesn't <laughs> want to do in the, in the NBA, a referee doesn't want to be, and I didn't want to be on Center that night as a lead-in. That's for darn sure. You don't want your name there. But at the same time, you're not going to shy away from Somebody, you know, you know, questioning your authority, your integrity, whatever it may be, and deservedly so, deserves a technical foul or a an ejection. And I think in that aspect, if a play, if a player is coming out criticizing the official, I think that the league, if they don't want, here's what the league thinks. I truly believe this, because there's over sixty some referees 
they're not going to get a – there might be some guys who can speak well, and there's other guys maybe you can't. So maybe a reporter might fluster them by asking them a question. Mm. Now, if it's just a statement or something. So I can see why the NBA wants to do that by not having everybody speak. But I truly believe in defense of the official that if someone like Harden or Chris Paul comes out and questions someone's technical fouls, the league should come out with a statement saying, here's what the official said in his game report. And we're doing something like that to at least let the fans know that, you know what, he's not calling a technical foul for no reason for whatsoever. And even, hey, there are times I've called technical fouls for game control purposes. I really have. And I've told, I called a technical player, everybody, I says, now, now's not the time to say anything. I said, I'll, I'll make sure I'll tell the league I shouldn't have called it. There's game control technical fouls. And years ago, now you, you probably get called on the carpet. But, um, but I, would, I, would, I, would, I would even write in a report. Um, either maybe sometimes I, if I reviewed it in my mind, I called the technical foul too quickly, shouldn't have called it. But nine times out of ten, I felt that the guy deserved it. But there's a small percentage that when they didn't deserve it, I'd be honest on a game report. And I have no problem with the league saying that, too. I really would. But I think it's, it looks – it's almost like one-sided. All you hear is the player, the coach, saying they didn't deserve a technical foul. And I do wish that the uh, referees would have either somebody speaking for them or maybe you know one or two of them speaking. Yeah, that's all in the vein of transparency, and that's where – the NBA is headed over the past few years to the two-minute report, which I've asked Adam Silver about having it be the whole game a, a few years ago. And he said the resources weren't there, but we'll see if we get, we'll get there at some point. But when it comes to transparency, we need to ask about Tim Donaghy and the most right. recent ESPN report. One, did you read it? Two, did it make you feel, if you did read it, any differently about the entire situation? Yeah, I did, definitely did read it. Of course, it's you know, it's like it's like a uh, you know a moth going to a light bulb. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You got to you got to read that. You know, it's it's sad, man. It really is sad. Um, and when it happened, I, it was almost like disbelief that I would think that any of my coworkers would even think of doing that. Um, and it's it's such a it's a, such a black eye for the officiating community, especially basketball officials, and it's a profession guys that is such an honorable profession i mean the men the men and women that officiate the sport are just incredible my wife you know in 25 years and all she says steve i don't really think i've met a bad guy now there might be guys you don't like personally like some other coaches but no she said she's met them all these these are stand-up guys and, and gals that are just people who want to do their job right you know and get it right and then you have a guy who comes out here and because of his greed, um, and you read the article and all, and it's sad. And you know what? No, I think. You no, know I thought of again. It just here's what it made me think of. Because I know, Tim's a Philly guy. I sure. played golf with the guy. I played. I refereed the guy. I played golf with the guy. I tried to mentor the guy. He would mm. try to say like, Steve, why am I not moving up? Why? Because I'm telling you guys, he had a talent to referee. Mm. I'm telling you right off the get go, he had a talent. He could be. He, in my opinion, if this guy was clean, he'd be in the finals right now. There's huh. no doubt in my mind. That's how good of a referee he was. And when he did this, I, the first thing I thought of, and I still never forget, is four little girls. He has mm-hmm. four little beautiful little girls who now obviously are probably in their 20s. And I still think of them today. When I read the article, I think of them today and thinking, gosh, you know, I hope they're doing okay. I think of them more than anything else. And Tim, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say anything about it because, you know, hey, Tim's a different guy. Obviously, I, I wish, I kind of wish he, you know, apologize to the officiating community and so on, but he, he hasn't, and that's okay. That's up to him. I mean, 
I'm not going to judge him on anything like that, but it's a, it's a black eye to the community. And I just, I really do. I just, it's funny you asked that question. I was thinking about it when I was reading it, and I thought of this four girls because I'd go over his house once in a while, and I'd see them. They were such precious little girls. And I just went, oh, man. You know, and, and now, like, what's, what are they thinking about their dad? I hope, I hope you know, they're okay with their dad. I mean, I hope they personally they have a better relationship. But uh, professionally, it's just, uh, it's, been, it's been tough because ever since that day, I know that some coaches probably sit there and think, uh-huh, I knew it. These guys, this is what these guys do. And you know what, guys, I'm telling you right now, there's so many solid guys and girls in his staff. It's incredible, man. It really is. They're, they're just, I, you know, I'd go to battle with them any day, most, you know, all of them. Yeah, so I mean, it's such a sick feeling. That I mean, I I just got a sick feeling in my stomach thinking about what you were thinking about with his with his four yeah. little girls when you yeah. bring family into it. When, right. when as you look as you look back on it, did you ever think anything was fishy going on at the time? That's you know what, it's a great question because even when I read the article again, I'm saying to myself, and I referee games, and I says, how if, if this was that obvious, how can we not know? Because we watched tape with the guy. I mean, if he was, if, I wouldn't be sitting there saying he's a really good referee if, if I was watching tape with the guy and he's missing plays. And right. I, I would sit there and watch tape with the guy. And even like Mark Wonder, like my buddy and I, we would sit there and say, Mark, we watched tape with the guy. If anything stuck out, we would have sat there and like question Mark in our mind. Like, and especially maybe game after game after game. He's done it that many times. And you worked with him, you would sit there and go, wow, you know, I think something's going on here. But never came to our mind. Never came to my mind. I don't think anybody else's. Is, it's crazy. It really is crazy. That, I mean, I think, here's the weird thing. That's how good he was. That he yeah. could fool even the guys he worked with and still get the job done. Because somebody who was horrible, mm-hmm. he would sit there and think, you know, oh my gosh, something's going on here. This guy, But this guy was that good. He could do that. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So, aside from what you're doing with ABC and ESPN, how are you spending your time off the court, family stuff, charitable endeavors? Uh, a couple of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I'm going to, I'm going to, I won't start with this one, but the second one I start with, I'm sure some of the players and coaches will sit there and scratch their head, but no, my, uh, we've, my wife and I have always been involved in trying to, you know, raise money for uh, charities. And so we had a charitable foundation when I was living in Montgomery County called the Javi foundation for charity. Uh, did that for about a dozen years. And, uh, proudly raised about a million dollars for local charities, which is really wow. kind of cool because it's, it's, it's amazing guys. I think this is why I believe most people are good because they want to help and they just need a vehicle. And luckily just through sports, I know a lot of people and we were able to raise money for local charities. And now we moved up here to a different County and my wife's been involved, uh, past 10 years or so as the president of the board and still a board member of this crisis pregnancy center for women wow. and it's just it's an incredible credible ministry these women do the council women that help them along not just to save lives of the unborn but also to help the women after the birth you know for like two three years of whether they need a place to stay or money or food it's 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 humbling it really is um and at the same time this is really it's crazy because it is a calling i um i'm just finishing my seventh year in formation and uh, god willing will be ordained a deacon in the Catholic Church uh, this June. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I don't even know if I uh, talked to our buddy Bruce about it, but it's something that after I was done refereeing, God, but, um, my life, I've been blessed in my in sports, and I've uh, always had my faith, and I always thank the Lord for what he's given me, and I just said there's something I have to do to to, uh, to return the favor, and more than just raising money, and in prayer, I got the call that he says he's, this is the way he wants me to go, so in the archdiocese of philadelphia 
it's a seven-year formation. You get your master's in theology at the seminary. And uh, I'm in my last semester right now, just passed all my exams this past month, which wow. a 63-year-old man, my buddies sit there and go, you're writing papers and you're 64 years old. You're going to be crazy, you know? And sometimes I don't think I'm the only crazy. I think our Lord can be crazy and numerous at times because in prayer I sit there and go, if this is what you want from me, just leave me alone, you know? And uh, he's been doing that. So we'll see, uh, you know, God willing, June is ordination. So we'll see Steve, what happens then. I got I to gotta figure there's a lot of fans out there that find irony in the sense that you're going to be a, a deacon with all they've they've told, places they've told you to go to, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot of players going like, really, are you kidding me after the way he talked to me? Well, anything I can say is, hey, man. We're all sinners. Guess what? You know, it's like every sinner has a past and every, you know, every, no, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Oh, that's wild. That's wild. So, uh, Adam, you want to, you want to wrap this wait, up? I bet you, you, didn't ex- you didn't expect that, did you guys? No, I didn't. I didn't. You did. no. uh, Adam, you, <laughs> you want to wrap right. this up with the, uh, the referee version of the catch and shoot? Yeah. So, so Steve, typically on the catch and shoot podcast, we ask the guest, you know, if you could pick one player in history, who would you have take the final shot in the game seven? But considering we have the great Steve Javi, the terrific NBA official on, we figured that instead um, we figured we didn't want you to single out any player. So you would increase that idea of bias in people's minds. So how about you just tell us the game seven dream team crew all time that should call an NBA finals game. Yeah, that's really good. That, I, that's a great question. Um, really is uh geez i am um, my first one obviously my first one obviously would be uh my main mentor joey crawford mm-hmm. he, he taught he taught me everything i know um there's no doubt um now you know it's, it's funny i i'll probably get i'll probably get a bunch of phone calls now too that these guys <laughs> yeah, no, nobody's guys. listening don't worry about it <laughs> yeah, <I guess>. yeah. <laughs> nobody's listening nobody's <laughs> listening um you know, I tell you, I tell you who I am, and I, I guess I'm going to pick from my contemporary. Well, I guess I have my mentors too, Joey. But Joey's my contemporary. I always thought Danny Crawford was just a solid, solid guy too. I love Danny the way he worked. I think, like, if I was working with Joey and then Danny came in, Danny would be the calming influence that we need. That, you know, yeah, that sure. kind of stuff. Um, and uh, let me see. I'm going to, um, I'm going to have to. I'm going to, I'm going to give you some guy that is probably well. I'm going to go with Ed Rush, believe it or not. Ed Rush, I just think, was, a, first of all, a wonderful teacher of the game. And also, I watched him and learned from me. He taught me so much. And I saw him react on the court to a lot of great situations. So, those, those, and I, you know what? I could make another crew, too. I mean, it's just like there's been so many guys who I think are phenomenal officials in my career and they're phenomenal mentors to me that taught me uh, everything I know. I, I tell people I never had an original thought, and I just was lucky to have great mentors in my uh, in my life in general, and also in my uh, in my career too. So I've been really a really a very blessed man on that. All right, we've taken up so much of your time. We appreciate it. Next time, we we got plenty more questions for you, but we're going to do that. We'll, we'll all watch an Eagles game together. How about that? Oh man, I'd love it, guys. You get to come to my house. I'll, I got all the goodies for you here. That's that. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Steve, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. It was awesome, Steve. Thank you. So Steve was outstanding, and, and I'm being honest. That I, I'd love to sit and watch an Eagles game with him and ask him all sorts of questions because there's still plenty more about just how the game today is officiated. But what just if I'm going to take one thing away, it would be that he thinks that 
the referees should be able to speak up for themselves, the actual officials on the court, and have their own form of a press conference or at least a statement. I know they have pool reporters, but pool reporters only there for certain instances when it's called upon. But if you know it's just you're a technical foul or you get someone thrown out and, and you need some sort of explanation, being able to speak up for themselves, I thought that was pretty interesting from Steve Jabby. I found that to be the most interesting too. And and it also made me realize how how one-sided things do get. You know, James Harden makes those comments or you randomly hear people say, "Oh, this official just is always terrible against our team" or people publicly are always trashing these guys. And specific calls after games, the one-sided nature of it, if you think about it, if you only heard from one side other than, you know, specific instances as you point out. But if you for the most part, her only heard from one side of any argument. Think about how biased you'd become for the players and how we have become for the players and for the coaches. I think about my own kids and my my 15-year-old daughter, Avery, and 12-year-old daughter, Bella, and the way that they fight back and forth. One of them will run into the room and say, oh, dad, you won't believe what she did to me, and goes on this whole thing. And by the time she's done, I am ready to just punish Right, of course. so badly and then i go in and talk to the other one and all of a sudden i get some measured response and some right. rationale right. and i'm like wait a minute no it wasn't your fault yeah exactly and i think that really is just like the uh, officials but i i have to say i'm so thankful that he came on and was so candid with us and just everything that he had to say um just in terms of how how i think he's a great ambassador for officials because he is just like all the other officials that i've met they all seem to be just really good authentic guys and now an ambassador for the Catholic Church. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. Great segue. Great transition. Right. I think we're about to go off the rails. So on that theme with <laughs> Steve Jaffe and the Catholic Church, this isn't where, where I was headed, but it just made me think of... Go for like, it. Like back in college, we all had playlists, of course, and for all different occasions... And and that was when we were using Napster. And I remember my buddy from home. He wasn't uh, he wasn't at school with me, but he had a his his like makeout playlist was called Bible Study, and and I remember saying like why Bible Study? He's like, well, the goal is to get her to say, oh my God, I'm like oh, well. <laughs> that's uh yeah, that's that's something. Oh, you took us off the rails. Uh, where is uh, that buddy now? That's something. Is he married? Yeah, married kid, lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Same same kid who in high school I remember. I remember one day he had, and he and, he, and the girl told me the story. Uh, actually, which came downstairs because we were all downstairs. That uh, that he that he hit play on a on a tape on a mixtape in his in his room. And the first thing that came on, like, and I believe him that it wasn't queued up for it, but he just hit play on the tape and it was, let's get it on. And I'm like, oh my God. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Well, Noah, as always, we have to thank everyone that's a part of the catch. And- no, no, not today. Cause, cause Steve Javi, we went a lot longer than we expected. Oh, no, we don't. no so we don't have to thank anybody. Oh, so even though in the fine print here it says to thank Bruce Bernstein and it says to or thank what? Scott or what? Or and what? Ron. Or what happens if we don't? Uh, I, 
I haven't read past that part. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Well, my, also, computer, I, my computer's dying. So I don't think we have time. Okay. Okay. Well, we don't have time, but we can thank you for listening. I, can we do that? Can we thank people for listening to oh, this? We podcast? definitely have plenty of time for that. Rate, review, share it. It is, it is a different kind of podcast. Oh look, my battery my my it went up to ninety percent just like that. It's it is a it's a different kind of hoops podcast. We take we take a lot of joy in going deep with the interviews and hopefully we know we know there are a lot of basketball podcasts out there, but we hope that you take something different away from this one. And go listen to the old ones, because there were some awesome interviews with Rick Barry and Bobby Marks, like different questions you're probably not gonna hear from from other people and uh noah asked the hard-hitting stuff and i, I yeah, get soft stuff so yeah. it's uh good cop bad cop noah as always though i do want to thank you regardless of the other guys and what what role they play i don't care what the contract says i'm going to thank my partner in crime noah kozlov and i thank everyone at home for listening because or in the car or wherever it is because uh please i want you to rate review and subscribe because that's what's going to continue to have us do this podcast and thank you and we'll talk to y'all next week The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 